1: a podcast from premier unbelievable Well hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death As always I'm Tim White and I'm joined here by my dad John White Hi dad
0: Hi Tim it's good to be here
1: Um, so today we're going to jump into a topic that we've not really talked about on the podcast for some time almost two years I think since we last touched on this which is the whole idea of friendship and this comes out of the fact that we should probably state up front that this is all kind of derived from research that you've done uh, as a result of writing a book all about friendship do you want to explain briefly about that before we get tucked into the meat of the of the episode
0: yes uh, friendship is a, a topic I've been fascinated by for many years um A lot of it coming out of my own experience of some very deep and meaningful friendships I've had over the years. But I've been trying to write a book. I've been wrestling with writing a book, trying to uh, give a Christian perspective on friendship. Um, But also dealing with some of the abuse, terrible abuse scandals there have been where friendships have, have become deeply corrupted and so on. So it's it's been a real a struggle but um, I'm glad to say that uh, the book is now pretty much completed and it's going to be called Transforming Friendship and it's going to be published here in the UK in, I hope, September 2023 if all goes well.
1: Brilliant, well we'll look forward to that and I'm sure um, we'll, we'll give it another plug nearer the time on the podcast, <laughs> encourage you to go out and find it in all good bookshops. Um, so Today, we wanted to pick out one particular idea at the start of the book, uh, which is kind of under the heading of the hermeneutic of suspicion, uh, which is an intriguing title for those who probably haven't heard about it before. Um, We wanted to start by kind of talking about, asking the question, why is there so much suspicion about friendship today in in kind of popular culture? Why do people seem, you know, eyebrow raised when two people seem to be in quite kind of deep, intimate, meaningful friendship?
0: Yeah, and... and Part of the problem in the English language is that this word friend, if you think about it, covers absolutely everything from, you know, my thousand internet friends, which <laughs> um and, and friending someone on the internet through to something quite trivial. Um, but then on the uh, the other extreme is this idea that of a really close and intimate uh relationship with another person which um and it's that particularly that sort of end of the spectrum that i'm really interested in and it is noticeable that uh many people have 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 come to this deeply uh, suspicious and, and cautious view um about friendship and so when you see two people particularly two men who seem to be spending a lot of time together and they go off, um, you know, maybe on holidays together, whatever it is, immediately all the suspicions are aroused. This must be, there must be something else going on there. And um, this phrase I came across, the hermeneutic of suspicion, I think is quite a, a helpful phrase. Hermeneutics applies... Um, is is a word which applies to the analysis and interpretation of written documents. That's really what it means about, so people talk about textual hermeneutics. And the hermeneutics of suspicion is, is something in textual criticism, which is a, an idea that you don't just take the surface meaning of the text. You don't so much ask, what does the text say? You ask, what is the author trying to hide? What are they? What are they keeping concealed from us? Uh, and and so the hermeneutic of suspicion, when it's applied to interpreting texts, uh, works like that. But I think it can also be applied to relationships. Um, so we start from a position of suspe- suspicion. We d- we suspect things are not what they appear to be on the surface.
1: It's interesting to me because I I'm not an expert at all, but. But there have been times in human history where where friendship has kind of been held up as the uh, almost the platonic ideal of human relationships and relationships between spouses or or parents and children or co-workers have been seen as incredibly inferior and and second rate in comparison to the kind of pure love of two friends. And whereas our current age seems to have flipped on its head and now we we say, well, if you know the, the 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 acme of human relationships must be romantic sexual relationships. That's what all our films point towards. That's what all our music says. That's what a lot of our literature point is kind of idealizes and idolizes. And and as a partly as a result, friendship seems to be have been significantly downgraded to to a much kind of lesser order nature of of relationship. And as you say, also, well, it's probably about sex anyway, isn't it? It's just a kind of charade, a veneer. A friendship is a veneer over a a sex relationship that hasn't quite kind of come out into the open yet.
0: That's right. And so there's a real blurring, isn't there, between a sexual relationship and a friendship relationship. And it sometimes seems as though people want to have sex with their friends and they want to be friends with their sexual partners. It's almost like <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's no real difference between those two concepts. Whereas, as you say, if you go back to the ancient world, the, the, the Greco-Roman world, um, there was an ideal um, you, you could find it in Aristotle and in a, a number of the uh, classical writers of what was often called perfect friendship it was it was celebrated as this non-sexual uh, but very profound uh, bond between almost exclusively between men and also only elite men so um, there were men who were a, in an elite social role were was, were celebrated for these perfect friendships um, but the idea that you might have a friendship with someone from a low social class was, was really n- not acceptable at all they, you had to be equal in status for the friendship to be genuine and similarly an intergenerational friendship uh, would not be seen as something that was appropriate or to be uh, encouraged,
1: and I think thirdly, it was all equally the same. Would be true for kind of cross-gender friendships, and, and and there was something you know it probably speaks of the kind of patriarchy of the of the era in that you know women's women to women friendships would be seen as kind of you know gossipy and uh, you know talking of the household and of children, and they didn't didn't have their mindset on these kind of big philosophical ideals like Aristotle and Plato were and all equally are therefore a kind of high elite status man and couldn't have a meaningful friendship with a woman because um, you know, they, they, they weren't meeting in the kind of Agora, the philosophical Agora as equals and, and conversing about the, the big ideas of life. Um,
0: yeah, that's right. And so um, there was this idea of ideal of male to male friendship. And um, when you come into the uh, Christian era, you can see that that was still quite influential in in Western thinking. But as I've been sort of going back and trying to look at friendship within the Bible, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, uh, you get a very different uh, kind of, um, a very different model of friendship which is being celebrated. Uh, and I think we're going to look at that in a in a future episode. But for now, I'd like to sort of think some more about this hermeneutic of suspicion and, and and what its roots are what because it's actually a relatively modern phenomenon I was going
1: to say I mean I was just thinking when you know so that's you know for thousands of years ago you did have this kind of uh, idealizing of certain kinds of elite male friendships and that I think probably there are echoes of that all the way through to the maybe the Victorian era in the 19th century you know you see the letters of of kind of high society men to each other were unbelievably kind of intimate and, and um, and their relationships were clearly seen as deeply profound and meaningful, um, and you have these men who would spend you know decades writing to each other and, and things like that. Um, so so where do you trace the kind of origin of the hermeneutic suspicion? Does it come after that era?
0: Yes, it does, and and I think a lot of it uh, really starts with Freud. Uh, you can see uh changes already going on before then. But the whole story of Freud uh, I find utterly fascinating and actually very poignant um from a uh, as a pediatrician because in essence Sigmund Freud was this highly respectable uh middle class um, neurologist uh with a private practice in um, in Vienna. And um, he was particularly fascinated with conditions, uh, neurological conditions where people presented with very obvious neurological abnormalities, but it it turned out there wasn't actually anything physically wrong with the brain. So for instance, they might have paralysis uh, of a, an arm or a leg, or um, spells of collapsing and swooning, or various other quite dramatic, often neurological, symptoms. Um, and this was termed neurosis. Um, and Freud was fascinated to try and work out what were the underpinnings, the neurological opinions, uh, underpinnings of these conditions. And but he, he had a very novel approach at the time. And this is, you know, we're talking about early 20th century. Um, and that was that he... Instead of the normal if you went to see a physician with a problem, uh, they would um maybe spend two or three minutes asking you what the problem was and would then proceed to examine you and then provide a therapeutic regimen of some kind. Um Freud developed a completely different approach. His idea, he had a he he had a, a shares long um in his consulting room, and uh, he would uh, lie the the patient down, um, it, and, it, and it was a darkened, quiet room. And he would sit at the head end, out of out of sight, and uh, he, he would then um, ask the patient just to talk about their past, um, and he would. Uh, say very little, simply unobtrusively taking notes, just allowing the patient to talk uh, at length. And this was a completely novel approach. And to his surprise, he discovered that many of his patients started pouring out strange events that had happened when they were children. And they were often events of what sounded like sexual abuse, of of adults who had abused them sexually and um he he was quite astonished by this and um he wrote a paper in which he presented these findings um to a local medical society and he um and not surprisingly this caused a lot of concern how could it be that these terrible things were happening in vienna and so he um he went back and re Thought and reflected about them, and he came up to a very surprising conclusion, and that was these were sexual fantasies that the children were having. Then they hadn't, the abuse hadn't actually happened in reality, it was all sexual fantasy. And it was really that theory that then led to the whole um, um, theories of that even the young infant was an intensely sexual being who was riven with sexual desire um if uh, either of oedipal desires for the mother or penis envy if it was a, a female and these intense sexual fantasies uh led to the adult neurological problems of, of neurosis which he was seeing
1: and we look back on that episode today And are we right to conclude that actually it seems far more more likely that Freud had actually just stumbled across the widespread nature of child abuse, which was largely unrecognized at the time?
0: Well, that certainly has been suggested. I mean, it's actually very controversial. Not surprisingly, people who have seen Freud and the whole psychoanalytical tradition um, are very resistant to this idea that the whole of psychoanalysis is based on a A fundamental misunderstanding of some basic clinical data. But as a pediatrician, I and I think many others think that actually it is uh, sadly um, likely that um, at least some of Freud's patients had in fact been abused by their fathers or by other relatives in the home, and that the reason that they were presenting with these deep psychological, psychiatric problems was as a consequence of abuse.
1: And we certainly know that from today, people who who are the victims of childhood sexual abuse, it's not uncommon for them to experience often quite serious psychiatric and mental health struggles in adulthood. So clearly it, clearly, it can happen like that way.
0: It can. And of course, what we now suspect is that, tragically, child sexual abuse has been there since the dawn of time. But it's actually only in the last 20, 30, 40 years that we've got to this the state where we actually can recognize the terrible things that are happening to our children in our midst. And arguably Vienna at the turn of the century was just not ready to accept the possibility that these terrible things were happening in respectable middle-class society.
1: listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier
0: Unbelievable.
1: So it sounds like you're arguing, or at least your contention, is that Freud was the first person who kind of injected into the mainstream this idea that everything is sexual and, and everything comes back to our, our sexualized desires.
0: Yeah, the fascinating thing is that from a scientific point of view, Freud's theories have been pretty well discarded and, and, and most people think they're scientifically worthless but these ideas have really penetrated into the culture so the idea that sex is good lots of sex is good for psychological health that trying to restrain and control and frustrate sexual desire, desires is really dangerous and leads to mental illness and breakdown uh, you know that celibacy is both unrealistic and potentially dangerous. Um, you know these ideas is are basically um, Freudian ideas, which have which have become widely disseminated now throughout our society. And um, but also this sort of cynical idea that when people are behaving in an altruistic way. Um, are doing things which are apparently noble and good and self-sacrificial. It's really only a hidden form of way of getting rid of sexual frustration or um, some kind of um, misplaced deep mechanisms it is all part of this psychoanalytic um, mindset which he really pioneered and which is still very powerful today.
1: I mean, you can see that, for example, in in the idea that living uh, a celibate life or, or or even a celibate individual relationship is is not just difficult, but kind of unthinkable and even kind of dangerous and self-destructive.
0: Absolutely right. And it, it all goes back to this Freudian idea, which was basically a hydraulic idea. I mean, he actually talks about, you know, libido has the same role as the steam in a steam engine. And it, it drives the pistons. <laughs> and the dangerous thing with a steam engine is if you dam it all up, if there's no outlet for that steam, you know you end up with a terrible explosion. And mm-hmm. so sex is like that. If it's dammed up, if it's frustrated, it's going to cause terrible damage. much better to let it out and find ways of releasing this inbuilt pressure.
1: And you can see how that idea is quite closely connected to what comes about. Comes to be known as the kind of sexual revolution in the nineteen sixties, which is, which kind of takes that to, to to its next conclusion, which is that well, if if sex if 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 impeded libido is bad, then it is healthy and positive and good for us to be having as much sex as many people as possible. That's right. And
0: um, what was fascinating though is there was another vital thing that happened. Um and and that is the uh, invention of the contraceptive pill. And um this didn't happen by accident. In fact, it was Margaret Sanger who American, who was the founder of the American Birth Control League, and and she was the driving force behind the search for new and safer contraceptives. And uh, she teamed up with a reproductive scientist called Gregory Pincus. And um, they found they had private philanthropic money and uh, they did these tests. And because contraception was illegal in the USA, they actually went to Puerto Rico um, and they did some clinical trials with this new pill and showed that it was incredibly effective at stopping pregnancy, but they couldn't market it like that in the usa and so it was marketed in the usa to quote regulate menstruation and the the package insight just warned that it had a side effect in stopping pregnancy but surprise surprise um hundreds of thousands of women started using this pill and uh in the, in 1960 it was explicitly approved as a oral contraceptive and it was said by 1965, one out of every four married women in America under 45 had used the medication. So the the pill was wildly, wildly successful. And for the first time, it gave women control over their own fertility. And it seemed, therefore, now they could uh, follow their sexual impulses and then and women could have sex uh, whenever they wanted,
1: confident that they were not going to get pregnant. And with the kind of liberation from the kind of shackles of the kind of social conservatism and the prudishness about sex, sex that starts to kind of permeate everywhere of society. And you see, um, you know, advertisers latch onto the idea that you can use sex to sell almost anything, and it's highly effective.
0: Yeah, and so we end up with this potent mix of different forces so you you've got freud and all that you've got darwinism as well which was stressing the importance of sex and evolutionary biology you've got uh, the contraceptive pill you've got this idea of sh- throwing off the shackles of restraint you've got the marketers using sex to sell everything and um malcolm Muggridge uh has this very striking phrase he says Sex is the mysticism of materialism and the only possible religion in a materialistic society. The orgasm has replaced the cross as the focus of longing and fulfilment.
1: The mysticism of materialism.
0: So the idea, I think, is that if you are a, a thoroughgoing materialist and you don't believe in any kind of spiritual or religious reality then where can you find your most overwhelming ecstatic experience, literally ecstasis, to be drawn out of yourself? And the answer is it's in an orgasm. Orgasm is the closest you can find to some kind of spiritual experience. And therefore, sex is the the meaning of life. And finding ways of having um, sexual experiences... Uh, with as many partners in as many different ways as possible, is the way that we ultimately find the meaning of
1: our existence. But the other half of the coin we talked about at the start about the hermeneutical suspicion is is that people don't just think that or suspect or call worry that friendships are sexual, but also that there is a, a power imbalance that they are coercive that' they're manipulative. Does that come out of the same kind of intellectual soil? No.
0: So this, uh, this is really a, a very different uh, route, and and this is traceable really back to Nietzsche, who has this um, visceral hatred of of Christianity. Um, he he hated the fact that Christianity taught you to snivel before God like a worm and, and plead for forgiveness. And instead he wanted humans to stand up proud and defiant and free from fear and free from guilt and shame. And um, he argues that actually morality is just a fiction. Um, He said, moral judgment has this in common with religious judgment. It believes in realities which do not exist. And of course, this is very helpful if you if you're interested in sexual liberation but you're worried about you know all the sexual moralities and the thou shalt nots and so on if it's helpfully explained to you that this is just a fiction um, created by the powerful in order to oppress you um this matches very nicely with this idea that we should be free and liberated and that we should be free to follow our sexual desires wherever we wish And um, Foucault, a more recent philosopher, sort of built on Nietzsche and argued that uh, all relationships between people are affected by power differences. And he said, therefore, that when the powerful create rules of right and wrong, they're basically mechanisms for oppressing us. Whenever someone says you mustn't do X, what they're basically saying is I want to subjugate you. I'm controlling you. And so we've got to unmask these charade and we've got to learn to push back against the dominating people. So basically I think very simplistically you can see these two things, that all relationships are about sex and power And uh, we've got to unmask. The powerful try to keep all this hidden. They make up their rules. They invent morality. They say, thou shalt not. Uh, They invent social and sexual conventions. And what we've got is see through. We've got to see through that and recognize the truth that we're being oppressed by patriarchy,
1: by powerful institutions. And we've got to throw it off. And so you come to our kind of present age, in which, as you argue, that we that that we instinctively see close friendships, whether in the church or outside, as as concerning. Or 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 we the instinct is we've got to try and peel back the layer and see what's really going underneath it because it can't be as basic as these are two adult individuals who enjoy each other's company and and want to be friends. Um,
0: Exactly. I mean, that would be incredibly naive to think. Oh, they just enjoy one another. You know, isn't that nice? Look at them going off on holidays together. You know, don't be naive. Um, There's there's more going on here, and there is some kind of deep hidden uh, power uh, or sexual or, or both. And the problem, of course, is that when that's the zeitgeist that's the that's the the ocean in which we swim and then you have these terrible abuse scandals you know you have all the abuse scandals of it turns out that catholic priests have been systematically abusing children uh in monastery you know in in not, not only the catholic church but then In many other areas of of Christianity as well um, and elsewhere, we see these terrible abuse scandals. And what these abuse scandals do is they just confirm the hermeneutic of suspicion. Oh, Freud and Nietzsche were right. It is all about sex. That's what Catholic priests have been up to. That's what these charming um, evangelical leaders have been up to. Um, It's all about sex and power.
1: Yeah. The ones and the kind of the ones in our particular sphere of, of um, you know evangelical leaders, names like Jonathan Fletcher and John Smythe, is particularly corrosive and, and damaging in this respect because the whole kind of idea was that these were kind of respected older Christian leaders who were taking young uh, Christian men, often just in their teens or, or early twenties, under their wing and spending lots of intimate one-on-one time together. And the theory was that this was going to be a kind of a friendship that would a mentoring, releasing friendship which would nurture the spiritual gifts in the younger man and share some of God's journey and, and shape them power of the ministry. and it actually turns out what was going on where the older man was uh, you know, physically, sexually, emotionally abusing letting the younger man for their own kind of gratification. Uh, it's just completely, as you say, suggests that the, hermeneutic, the suspicious hermeneutic. Was, was spot on.
0: Yes. And, and also it applies to the cases which is not sexual, but is to do with power. You know, you think of, um, you know, the examples of Mark Driscoll and many other um, church leader scandals where the issues have not been primarily sexual, they, but they've been about the abuse of power. That's that one dominating individual has been claiming God's authority um but using it in order to advance their own interests um, and
1: um, and abusing vulnerable people who were powerless. So that's how friendship got broken. I suppose you could sum up what we've been talking about over the last half an hour or so. Um, that's how we lost touch with with the good of friendship um uh it's all we've got time for this week but so next week we're going to come back and pick up the story and and pick up some other material from from John's book which talks about how can we reimagine uh friendship what what is what is possibly how we could even transform friendship you could say how can we uh rebuild a genuinely authentically christian friendship rather than just abandoning this institution uh, and this form of relationship for good
0: yeah i mean it's understandable why many people are thinking actually this is all too dangerous and particularly church leaders and people in authority you know i just can't be involved in these close friendships because every tongues are going to wag uh it's just too dangerous so it's going to uh, ruin my reputation and, and so the instinct then is just to protect ourselves but you know i feel very strongly if we do collapse into this self-protective way of behaving, then we're allowing evil to triumph. We're basically saying evil has the last word and it's simply not possible to have healthy uh, Christ-centered friendships
1: anymore in our suspicious world. great well we'll be back soon um next week to, to pick up on that thanks so much for listening as always um and yeah details about how you can get hold of john's book transforming friendship uh, later this year when it comes out um but as always you can get in touch with us by emailing molad at we would be really interested to hear your thoughts on this particular topic and have you got have you had experience of, of kind of positive life fulfilling friendships how, how has that worked do let us know Um, uh, And as always, uh, head over to johnwyatt.com, Dad's website, to find plenty of more material to to read and uh, listen to uh, and watch. Um, But otherwise, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier
1: Unbelievable.